This is PRN, your as-needed dose of medical knowledge. I'm Alana Castro-Gilliard. And I'm Chandler Davis. This podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. It is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice or the practice of medicine. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Adward via College of Osteopathic Medicine or any other institution or employer. Today, we get the chance to speak with Dr. Ken Shore on disaster relief medicine, the before, during, and aftermath of it all. I am Dr. Ken Shore, and I'm happy to talk to you today about disaster medicine and public health. My background is that I spent 34 years in the Department of Defense as a physician. 27 of it was active duty in the Navy, and I've had 20-plus year interest in things like international disasters, and then toward the end of my career when I was at the Uniformed Services University at the Preventive Medicine Residency as an Associate Program Director, I was asked to be a founding director of a the National Center for Disaster Medicine and Public Health. That The purpose of that center was to develop educational strategies uh, for the health sector of the nation in disasters. So we did a lot of development of learning modules, many of which are free and online right now, uh, developing uh, research in terms of what people need to know after disasters like Hurricane Sandy or other natural events. Can you kind of explain to us what natural disasters you have worked with? There's all different kind of disasters. There's slow onset, fast onset, there's technological, there's natural. There's complex disasters like like you see in African nations that are falling apart and have famine, and there, there are factions that are fighting. I was involved with supporting responses to stabilize the country of Liberia when it was a failing state, and that was a complex uh, emergency. I spent time on a ship offshore there supporting that medically. Uh, and our U.S. Embassy uh, as they stayed in place and tried to keep the country going. One of the biggest things that I got involved with was with the Indian Ocean tsunami in 2004, where um, I ended up being the Department of Defense liaison to the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance, which is part of the State Department. So we were in an operations center down in downtown D.C., and I was the lone DOD guy with all the other responders who were trying to put together a multinational, a multi-agency response half a world away to deal with the devastation of the Indian Ocean. I've also been on the recovery side of the Japan earthquake disaster, which I guess is about seven years ago now. I was fortunate enough to go over to Tokyo and talk with physicians, medical students, some of the best and brightest in the country of Japan who were trying to figure out how to help that country respond to that disaster. And because of the interesting cultural differences and how the country looked at responding to disasters, it was a fascinating evolution to see the the disaster zone from their eyes and to talk to the officials that had initially responded and try to help coach them in ways of thinking uh, as they move toward recovery. And I was at the Pentagon compound in 9-11 and I was not in the Pentagon. We were on the building on the hill that the plane flew over, but as the Marine Corps headquarter uh, surgeon's office, we helped direct initial response 
stragglers that were walking away and also uh, helped put in the mental health response that saw 2,000 people that were directly affected, mostly active duty. So different kind of aspects. It's not like I was just sort of sitting there and directly walking in and doing that very initial response. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot said about the, res- the initial response, the acute response is kind of the sexy part of this. Mm-hmm. Preparedness is a big deal and you hear a lot about it on the radio and television. But about 10, 15 years ago, not too many people really thought about the recovery piece of that. And as one of the Pan American Health Organization physicians that I've worked with said, you know, it's going to take 10 years to recover from some of these storms. And nobody wants to hear that when you say that, but it takes a long time. I personally know about that as someone, my family is from Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And so they are definitely still in a lot of the recovery efforts. It's just wild to me that there's still so many electrical issues that affect the healthcare in some ways. In general, I think a lot of our students are concerned with the healthcare aspect, obviously. And so one of the things that really drew me to this topic also, I previously read a book called Five Days at Memorial, which is about Hurricane Katrina Mm -hmm. and the response effort to that. One of the things that was really interesting to me was that the healthcare workers were required to stay at the hospitals to help. And I was just wondering what your opinion is on that as healthcare workers. Do you think during a natural disaster it is our duty to provide care when we see an impending issue or? You know, I think the the answer to that is pretty complex. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did hear the author of that book speak. I never quite plowed through the whole book. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a long book. (laughs) Yeah, it is a long book. I think of it in a couple of terms. I think of it in the sense that I think it's pretty clear from a licensure standpoint and from a pure ethics and legal responsibility that we have when we have a physician patient relationship that we should you know hang in there and do as much as we can for our patients I think in many of these disaster settings and even in some of the context of that book although not all of it that the physician patient relationship was not as clear so then it becomes more of a moral uh, understanding with the ethics involved you know and then I also step back and I say well we as physicians and all the other healthcare team, we live and, and benefit from the fact that we can work day in and day out, and except for maybe gun violence in the clinic or the hospital, most of the diseases that our patients have are not a direct threat to our lives like they were during the Spanish flu pandemic. Uh, like they are in Ebola right now over in West Africa. So I think that to some degree, we have not maintained that sense of duty to patient that I think was pretty true 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. And that people knew going in that they had a good chance of getting tuberculosis and ultimately dying because there may not have been a treatment except packing their chest with ping pong balls or something like that. Had a patient that... Still had that. that, yeah, it was pretty cool. And then, uh, you know, so they, we, we don't have that mindset. So I think that affects how we think about sticking with the patient. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that's a good thing, but I think that that is how the advances of technology and medicine have pulled us away and we feel like we're not threatened. But when a disaster happens, 
you are threatened. And so that creates some real ethical challenges that we would tend to think about ourselves, about our families. And then somewhere the patients are kind of maybe third cousins, I'm not sure. <laughs> and and I, I hate that, but I think that's part of the explanations of what we may see in these extreme emergencies. So you think it doesn't happen as much anymore that we stay with the patient when a disaster happens? Yes, I don't think we stay in an area where our life is definitely at risk mm -hmm. so much because we understand the pathology, the risk, and we have countermeasures to that like gloves and mm -hmm. protective gear and things like that. So we can evaluate right. differently yeah. now than we could right. 100 years ago. Right. You talked about preparedness a little mm -hmm. bit before. There are the long-term and the short-term mm -hmm. kind of disasters. What are some things that you do in a health system to prepare for a natural disaster that you know is coming or that you know there is a potential to happen? Fortunately, in the United States, there is funding for things called health care coalitions. Mm -hmm. So that means that despite the business of medicine saying this hospital is directly competing with the neighboring hospital, it recognizes that in preparing for a large disaster, you have to all work together. Mm -hmm. And you also have to bring in a whole lot of people you don't play with, like public safety. I mean, you interact with them in the ER, but not so much for different things. Probably one of the first things is to uh, figure out what your risks are. Hospitals have emergency managers. That's number one. What are the threats? Am I over... Uh, a really active earthquake zone? Do I have to worry about earthquakes? Do I have to worry about wildfires? Do I have to worry about uh, floods from rain or, or hurricanes? Do I then have to worry about the second order effects of what do I do when there's no electricity for days and I have 40 ventilator patients and I don't have enough fuel to keep the generators running? So you start looking at this from a primary risk or threat basis and then kind of work backwards from that. Uh, am I upwind from a nuclear power plant? And there may be a three mile island kind of scenario, things like that. So uh, do a full risk assessment is probably one of the first things. And then most hospitals are really full these days. And in many urban areas, you have to wait a while. You have to hotel in the ER before you can get a room, even if you're really sick. So there are ways to think about that. How do you sustain your operations that you're working on in a safe manner? How do you, maybe most importantly, how do you bring your staff in? The studies with uh, Hurricane Sandy, in many settings, the difficulty of sustaining public health operations or clinical operations was getting the workers back to their offices if those offices were still intact safely. Pretty much what you have to understand is, who do you talk to above you? Who do you talk to, to your right and to your left and your front and your back? And who are you working for that's kind of subordinate to you and helping you? And if you understand that, you don't have to make it more complicated than that. So a lot of communication and evaluation. Yes, and situational awareness and ongoing assessment and, being re and realizing that information changes, knowledge changes, what you thought was true yesterday is not true today. So it's constant reassessment. 
Have you seen any sort of disaster relief medicine mistakes from an organizational standpoint that you think could easily be fixed? I was once asked, there was a, a, a hurricane down in Central America, I think it was Hurricane Mitch, and it was flooding things out, and I was, and, and they people wanted to get in surgical ORs, field operating rooms, things like that, and in my preventive medicine hat, I was able to make a very quick argument, and you probably don't need those kind of people. You need public health, preventive medicine, primary care, because the primary care system, weak though it may have been in certain in this country, in other countries, is disrupted. People don't have their chronic day-to-day -day meds. That's more important than kind of the high-level emergency medicine kind of things that is the romanticized version of response. So there's that awareness of the basic needs you know, the hierarchy of needs is still there. People have to have clean water. People have to have sanitation. People have to have a, some food. People have to have shelter. And then increasingly, you know, communities, agencies are developing inventories of people that have sort of special support needs. So a good example in Sandy is the primary care team up at Mount Sinai. When the power was out for days after Sandy hit, they logged a whole lot of flights of steps because they would have to go up to the 33rd floor walk up because there were ventilator dependent patients who lived in their apartment on the 33rd floor for like 10 years and so they didn't have electricity <laughs> so that was a problem but um the electrical dependence of so many people to have portable oxygen machines for instance or respiratory treatments or other electrically powered devices to live. There's a lot of people in our populations that need that. There are people that have, we looked at um, what are called access and functional needs folks. So how do you support people who have visual impairment in a shelter? How do you support people that have hearing impairments that no longer have hearing aid batteries that work? So how do you communicate to them so that they feel safe and that they can enjoy as much independence and self-care as they're, they're used to and they don't want to be dependent? So it sounds like from a relief effort standpoint, there's a forgotten element of the long-term care. And then there's also the element that every person's approach or every person's situation is different and so you have to individually care for everyone still even though it is a larger disaster and so how do you accommodate for those specific right. needs of every individual so the needs of the elderly that are not ambulatory mm -hmm. the needs of those who have dementia uh, the, the needs of families with young kids and oh by the way what do we do with pets um, they evermore come along and many disaster boxes, like with the tornado that uh, hit the Midwest and clobbered the hospitals, it, it was a force five tornado. Well, the neighboring hospital, which happened to be a, an osteopathic hospital, uh, actually had dog leashes in their ER response box, and they used them all. And so you have to think about the context in which we live to realize that unless you have some way of taking care of somebody's animals or a shelter to shift people to that 
uh, is for animals because not everybody wants to be in a shelter with animals. You know, you have to think about the complexities of our, of our culture. That's so interesting. I hadn't even thought about, I mean, there's obviously the element of taking care of someone's lungs and their heart and making sure those things are functioning, but there's also their lives. Yes. These are humans. They have, they have rooted themselves in places and have their day-to-day, and so you have to really evaluate mm-hmm. what their day-to-day is and try and make that mm-hmm. as, so, as similar to that previous one as possible. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, they won't cooperate. Mm-hmm. They won't they won't feel uh, healthy and whole to the extent that they can. They won't be comforted, and they may just get up and go back out in harm's way in a post-disaster setting, which is not necessarily a good thing. How do civilian physicians get involved with this? Is it to send money? Is it to go yourself and help? Is it to send supplies? The typical teaching, whether it's international or domestic response, is to send money. Um, I have seen pictures uh, of the Indian Ocean tsunami where uh, they had mountains of winter clothes in the middle of the subtropical Indian Ocean in Banda Aceh, I think it was. And all they could do was burn all that stuff because everybody here wanted to make themselves feel good and clean out their winter wardrobe because of when this happened, like November. And and they just wanted their new wardrobe, take the tax write-off and, and send it to somebody and pat themselves on the back. The worst thing to do is to send stuff Disaster response is about a pull in based on needs. I distinctly remember a, uh, a beer distributor company that called us in that tsunami, and this happens in the United States too. And they said, oh, we just sent you our uh, distilled water production plant and dropped it off in this port. Go ahead and take it for wherever you want to. The trouble is there's no roads, there's no way to get it there. And so uh, people are well-meaning, but people don't understand the, the logistical constraints, the lack of access, the lack of roads, the lack of electricity, uh, you know, where, gee, if they could have sent some filters, that we could have filtered water and some drops of bleach, that we could purify the water. Clean enough water is better than absolutely pristine water. So we, so it's about sending money and having it contextually appropriate for what is needed in that region. So money, yes, always. I think there's a center, there's a website that's been around a long time. It's the Center for Responsible Giving in Disasters, and so, uh, which is out, used to be out of Fairfax County. So yes, money, and then I think responding without being invited in is not a good thing. So it should be, uh, the response should be coordinated by the people that know what's going on as best as possible. So the local folks with some consultative help by experts that know how to do this. And then they should say, this is what we need. You know, no, we don't need your big water distillation plant. We do need some ways to filter green stuff out of water. And then we do need some way to teach people how to put chlorine in the water, for instance. We do need some way to get some locally, uh, you know, some medications to people. Now, you can't make that in the area, but you also don't want to be giving expiring medications. They should have six months uh, before they expire. 
as a general rule before you donate that to the area. It should be based on, rather than us pushing what we think they really, really need, and usually, and it's because we care and we want to do something, we unfortunately it's not always the right thing. And so let the people in the, in the zone of the disaster determine what is needed in consultation with experts and then send that stuff in. Because they probably know their community the best and what works for them. And there are cultural appropriate things. You know, Mm -hmm. if if there are religious dietary prohibitions, well, you can't send things that go against that because it's just not going to be used. And Mm -hmm. you've wasted a whole lot of of logistics and effort and money and people's time and maybe put people at risk. My dad and I have talked extensively about Puerto Rico. He lives in Puerto Rico. And one of the things that he said, and this was that sending money was much more important so that the money could be put back into the economic system as well in that country. Because when you send food, then that means that the local markets that have food or that might have some supplies are then also not getting money to be put back mm-hmm. into the system to help the economics. Yeah. It makes sense to me. Would you agree or disagree oh, with Oh, absolutely. That? Oh, yeah. Um, this is a big topic at the international arena where... If we flood an area with food, A, is it the correct food? B, is it the food that people know what to do with? They've never seen this form of this kind of food before. And and then you also wipe out the market, the commerce, absolutely. And it's true in the United States, too. You know, if we are in a large flood zone or big area, there are people that are still going to try to make it. And uh, you don't want to disrupt them. You want to help them. So there's some examples where, you know, you don't want to fly in a field hospital when there are local physicians there. Now, that can be done at times when the local physicians need a break. You don't want to displace their livelihood either. Well, why not look at the hospital that's there and see if it's still fixable and then go in and fix it? You know, shovel out the mud, get the electricity going. The Pan American Health Organization has developed some great things about disaster resilient hospitals because in many countries the hospital is like the the beacon on the hill it's it's the organizing principle of that community and getting that started uh, builds the connection and the connectedness for the community uh, to, re- to recover from you have to think about economics you have to think about the local workforce and helping them get back on their feet rather than displacing them and taking money out of the country or out of the area. So it seems all very complicated on how you can help. <laughs> are, is there a way that you recommend for screening organizations if you are going to be sending money or if you are going to be trying to help? Is, is there a way that you can best identify who's actually going to help? You know, unfortunately, I'll fall back to things like there are organizations for international response. There's the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance who vet the people that they hire. And they've worked with these NGOs for years and, and they're very reliable and they do the right thing. Nationally, it gets a little bit trickier. You can look at some of the guide, I think they're called GuideStar, that rate charities to see how they use funds that are given to them. You can also, you know, establishing prior connections to, um, to organizations. So. But if, if you're in an area, you might want to know what is in that area. So you have to do some pre-screening. There are some of these screening websites that are available. 
And then I think a lot of it is looking at some of the bigger organizations like CARE. They wouldn't keep going if they weren't doing a good job. They have a lot of eyes on them. And so they're probably doing the right thing. In this case, it's not bad to think of the feds as bad bureaucracy. There are standards that they have to meet. And I think that's, that's a good way to look at things. I like to kind of finish the interview sure. with a question that's a little more fun. Do you have any sort of advice that you would like students in general to know as we're going on this career path to become oh physicians? <laughs> advice for life. <laughs> I would say that never forget you have been selected and you are on a path where a lot of trust is being placed in you. And you should always remember to value that trust and live up to that trust. And I think if you remember that, the gift that you have been given to become a, an osteopathic physician, that'll keep you going. That'll recharge your batteries. And then I would suggest that, as many of you have figured out perhaps, that finding short, simple, easy ways to rebalance your life and smell the roses. I think you've all figured out that you can't spend as much time, you know, smelling the roses and doing all those fun things that you used to do before you started here. Uh, but to find ways to spend five minutes to get what used to take you two hours benefit out of. Uh, unfortunately, that's, that's the, what a profession is about and a demanding one like this. And then just always remember that this is a privilege and it's not a right. So respond to it as a privilege. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Me too. Thank you. For more PRN, please be on the lookout. If you like this episode, tell someone about it and start up a conversation. I'm Alana Castro-Gilliard. I'm Chandler Davis. And this is PRN.